Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome to Buckeye Talk. It is the Big Wednesday edition. I am Nathan Baird from Cleveland.com along with Doug Maurice and Stephen Means. This is, we're on the eve of, or I guess Wednesday will be the first day of the late signing period. We're not necessarily anticipating big action for Ohio State, but this is a week where we're covering a lot of recruiting topics and we're going to do that again today with the, the 2018 signing class. I wanted to bring up something else though that just happened this morning and I want to get your guys quick take on this before we get into football. Is it something your dog did? No, no, it's something uh, I did and felt as uh, dumber than a dog. So um, about an hour before we're supposed to record and I'm the one who's in charge of putting this together. So I'm actually, I had already done a lot of the, the notes and stuff, um, but I, I wanted to do some more work. So an hour before we're supposed to record, my wife comes up and says, Hey, our refrigerator is out. So we go downstairs and like the electronic readout on the front is dead. There's no lights inside. It's not making any noise. We're pulling it out. We're checking the plug. We're doing all sorts of things. We finally call the, the warranty place and they're like, well, you have to call somebody else. So we call a person, we set up an appointment. They're not gonna be able to come to tomorrow. We're like thinking we're gonna have to take stuff outside and put it in the snow overnight to keep our meat cold or whatever. And then we happen to note, um, I plugged in something else. I plugged in an ice tea maker because I'm like, well, I don't want this ice to go to waste and it won't turn on. And then I remembered, oh, our toaster also hadn't worked this morning. And I thought it was because the bread that I put in it was wrong and the toaster could sense that I had put in um, bad bread, which is a bad, which is a story I can't even begin to explain right now why I thought that. But then my wife pushes the little button on the little, on the outlet. And now all of a sudden all the outlets magically work and so does our fridge. The little red button on the uh, outlet the, the, the trips it. Yes, yes, exactly. The G, the GCFI thing, whatever. So I just, I just want people to know who are listening to this, while I think we're going to be able to talk fairly intelligently about Ohio State football recruiting for up to the next two hours, we are at our core, at least one-third of us, idiots. Just this incredibly is, stupid. This is good advice for Steven moving into his new place. That's true. You are fairly new in your place. I would like to remind people that we have had long debates on this podcast about you replacing toilets and you didn't know how to fix the outlets in your kitchen. 
because well, you have too many things plugged in and you trip the, so- the, the socket. But see, I actually feel, I do almost feel smart at the end of this though, because if I had not, it was like process of, of elimination, right? Like I tried to make iced tea. I'm like, wait a second, this outlet doesn't work. Oh, hold on a second. That other outlet didn't work. We put two and two together and finally she hits the button and then, and then we magically fix it ourselves. So we could call back and cancel the appointment. Um, in Steven's case, I think he would have just like called his maintenance people and like three days later, they would have come and hit the button, right? That's what you're paying for. That's what you're paying for in the apartment. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) We are not particularly competent humans at times. So, so I don't, I don't know if it makes people feel better when they hear us tell stories like this, or if it makes them want to turn off the podcast, that is something you have to be on the alert for. You cannot be living in a world where your toaster and your ice tea maker are tripping your circuit breaker to the point that like your fridge is turning off. So you may have to reevaluate your plugging in well, situation in the kitchen. They were, they were different outlets, but I actually think it was the air fryer the night before. I'm really diagnosing this. I feel like, um, like CSI kind of stuff going on here. I think it was actually the air fryer the night before I unplugged it before it had turned off. Um, by the way, air fryer, if we do a, a kitchen appliance bracket, I'm, I'm ride or die for air fryer. Those things are amazing. Air fryers are, are – they're the thing. I think that was like a pandemic thing is everybody realized air fryers are great. We have one too. I mean, I've, We have two I've, of them because we already owned one in our old place and our new roommate brought one as well after we right. told him not to do it. So, so now at this point, like we might as well get a third one and keep them in our rooms. You guys – well, that, that is – actually, let's not do that. Let's not have the air fryer catching your room on fire situation oh happening at the new Means Apartment uh, housing complex. But you guys could open like a fast food franchise. You get three air fryers going, you're basically a Burger King. Yeah. You start charging people to come over and hang out. I think you should each put an air fryer in your bedroom and then just have a contest to see who's the first one who eats so much out of the air fryer that they can't fit out of their bedroom door. Like they're just stuck in the bedroom. Someone has to So come, like, we were having this discussion last night when we had our first family meeting, and I came to this conclusion that if I bought an air fryer and a microwave, I literally don't ever have to leave my room. Ever. My, I, my office is in here. You know, my bedroom's in here. I have my own bathroom. I have the master bathroom, so I have my own bathroom. My closet's in here. So I could literally have a studio apartment if I just bought those two things. And they looked at me and said, don't do that. <laughs> don't set you the sure? house on fire. You sure it was your suggestion and not theirs? I'm gonna, yes, let's blame it on them for the sake of we've had enough stupid moments already on this pod. Yes, it was 100% on them. By All the right. way, if people Good. can hear Steven right now, Without straining their ears, we are in a new era of Buckeye talk. Steven is using a new microphone system. He's holding a microphone up to his mouth like he's a, uh, an MC. So he's going to be doing that for the next two hours. But the idea was to have his audio level get raised up to my level of screaming and, and uh, Nathan's level of um, mellifluous uh, baritone. So I can hear it better. Hopefully you guys can hear it better. We're here to serve you. We just we got like another Apple podcast review and it was like the most aggravating thing to me when it's like the review, which should be about content, is like, we can't hear Steven. And it's like, okay, we have to do something about this. So we have done something about it. Steven's hand is gonna cramp up in the service of the listenership. But we hope uh, we hope that's a little clearer for you guys because Steven has good things to say and we want to be able to hear it. It's what they pay me the bucks to do. Cramp up my hand for the sake of Buckeye Talk. You got two hands, just switch them back and forth. Just set a little timer. You know how we set the timer supposedly for the, the rapid fires and we're supposed to do a new one every four or five minutes, but that usually goes out the window by like question two. Just set yourself a little timer every four minutes, just change hands. 
Yeah. Or what I could really do is when you guys are talking, at least for now until this um, stand gets in, is I can just go on mute so I can, you know, rest my hand a little bit. Because some of you got you two go on soliloquies as well. So that's a good way to go about it. I will be curious to hear reaction to this. I purposefully do not start try to start with a seven-minute off-topic thing because I, I want to dive in and then get off-topic. Nathan goes the opposite way. I'll be curious to hear what people say about uh, the beginning of this Buckeye talk. Yeah, we've been on this topic now for about 10 okay. minutes. We've gone right, about seven. four different places. I tried to start talking football like three minutes ago and got interrupted by something else. So let's, <laughs> that's enough of the banter, and now we'll get All on right. to the, the task at hand, which is the 2018 signing class. I wrote a piece, uh, what was it, last week or week before, kind of delving into – uh, the where this class is now, looking back on where it's come over these past four years. And it, it's, it's a really fascinating class to me. Um, for people who don't remember, this came on the heels of the 2017 class, which was also the number two ranked class in the country, as the 2018 class was. So I want to take a real quick look back very quickly at 2017, just for people to be reminded. Because actually, after I sent out the survey, which uh, to all of our tech subscribers, 614-350-3315, Many of you responded uh, first when I sent out the screwed up <laughs> survey, and then when I sent out the, the corrected survey, even more of you responded. So we really appreciate that, and we're going to use those answers uh, over the course of this podcast. But Did just to people remember- note, Nathan, that you screwed up a survey this time and it wasn't me? Was there any feedback on that? Because I'm Thanks. known for screwing up surveys. I was accused of dugging up the survey. Good. Um, but there was even someone who said Doug Lamery's survey screw up greater than Nathan Baird's survey screw up. So now people are, are doing their own surveys as to which of us screws up the surveys more, which I think is the most Buckeye talk thing that you could really um, aspire to. But the, the 2017 class that was ranked number two in the country, this is the one that had a, I, I would say a more conventional number two class in the country history, right? I mean, Chase Young, Jeff Okuda, Sean Wade, Wyatt Davis, J.K. Dobbins, Josh Myers. I mean, those were all top 53 guys. And you had uh, Tathan Martell, 56, right behind him. But all those guys, I mean, those just hit after hit after hit after hit. Even someone like Baron Browning, you saw him start to kind of realize more of his his potential, maybe somewhat sporadically later in his career. You had a guy like Trevon Grimes who transfers out but still ends up doing some things elsewhere in his career. You can get even farther down that list. Haskell Garrett, a guy who's breaking through. Um, who am I forget? Pete Werner, Thayer Munford, you're hitting on a guy that's almost down in the 300s. Blake Hobby was in that class. So I think just that when you think of a number two ranked team uh, class in the country, that's kind of what you think of guys who leave after three years, real superstars when you're hitting at the very top. It sets the foundation for what that team was the last two years. To just recap, as a, just, just to, and to interrupt, when, when we were at the Fiesta Bowl in 2019, getting ready for Ohio State Clemson. That was like the big story I worked on that week. And I talked to, because it was like seven top 100 guys who formed the core of a national championship contender. As you said, Chase Young, Jeff Okuda, Baron Browning, J.K. Dobbins, Sean Wade, Wyatt Davis, Josh Myers, all super important players in their third seasons. Some of them left, some of them didn't, but it was like top 100 guys, some five stars, absolutely turning into what you expected them to turn into. And the result was an undefeated team. Like it was, as you said, it was a traditional thing. It was exactly how it's supposed to work. It was formulaic and they all had different recruiting stories, right? There were some 
Texas guys in there and Chase Young's from Maryland and Wyatt Davis is from California and Josh Myers is an Ohio kid. Sean Wade's from California or from Florida, but it worked perfectly. And to your point, there's, there's no way that you could have done a story like that about the 2018 class for this playoff run, which is your point, but it is stark in a lot of ways, the comparison. Steven, uh, you're the guy who covers recruiting the closest for us. Do you feel like that 2017 class is sort of, in a lot of ways, what Ohio State wants to do every year? Yeah, I think a co- having a combination of different guys where you've got a Chase Young, a Jeff Okuda, a J.K. Dobbins, who are highly rated guys who are three and out and are superstar level guys by their third year, but also having a guy like Thayer Munford who's in the low 200s, guys like Pete Warner who aren't necessarily top 100 recruits, but they're, you know, they're guys who are important parts of this of the of the defense and the offense important parts of this team for three or four years and maybe aren't three and out guys but they're still important parts because they develop so it shows off okay hey we can turn a five star into a first round draft a high first round draft pick but also if you're a guy in the low 200 or even the 300 or even a borderline four star recruit it might take a little bit longer but you're still going to develop until maybe a top 100 draft pick when it's all said and done so we just wanted to lay that 2017 because I feel like it, it sets the stage for 2018 because you see that a team gets back-to-back number two ranked recruiting classes. And then there's bigger perspective on that that we covered for the Tuesday pod if people want to go back and listen if they haven't already where we're kind of talking about the, the concept of the number one class and, and Ohio State striving for that. But here's the number two ranked recruiting class that they turn in for 2018. And I'm reading these in, in order of their ranking by the 24-7 National Composite. Nicholas Petit-Frere, the number – Seven overall player in the 2018 signing class. Teron Vincent, number 20. Tyreek Johnson, number 21. Jalen Gill, number 30. Tyreek Smith, number 34. Jeremy Ruckert, number 37. Taraja Mitchell, number 44. So that's right there. That's what? uh, Seven top 50 guys. Tommy Togiai, number 55, right outside of that. Matthew Jones, number 68. Josh Proctor, number 71. Cameron Babb, number 73. Brian Sneed, number 80, Tyler Friday, number 93, Max Ray, number 121, LaChristian Smith, number 126, Dallas Gant, number 166, Antoine Jackson with the number one JUCO prospect in the country that year, a guy um, who came up from Auburn, Um, Kayvon Pope, number 217, Javante Jean-Baptiste, number 219, Seven Banks, number 221, Master Teague, number 228, Cameron Brown, number 323, Matthew Baldwin, number 331, Chris Olave, number 399, Alex Williams, number 615, and Marcus Hooker, the Mr. Irrelevant of this signing class, just in terms of being the last guy, number 640. Uh, So, Doug, before we kind of get into a lot of maybe those specifics, I kind of wanted to get just your snapshot of what that meant in Ohio State history at the time. I kind of take us back to 2018 and the feel of pulling in a class like that on the heels of having pulled in a 2017 class that in some ways I thought maybe it paid a little bit of immediate dividends, but it was maybe just that, that back to back that, that probably set, I assume set a stage or set an expectation in people's minds of what was to come. So again, the, the, the point of what we're doing here is to look at this 2018 class, much of which is still around and, and what its history is and what it, what it still has left to do in 2021. And when you think about where things were, and the reason we're doing this now is, 
20, the 2018 class was the first year of the early signing period in December, where most of this 2018 class did sign in, in December. But we still had, on the first Wednesday in February, we still had an Urban Meyer signing day news conference that day. We all went into the team room. We talked to Urban Meyer. Greg Schiano talked that day. And it was like the transition year. It was a remnant of certain things. And it turned out to be an absolute kind of dividing line or, or almost like a last hurrah of the Urban Meyer era in 2018. And it's kind of appropriate that this 2018 class is part of that. Because what was happening there was the 2017 class was like arguably, arguably the best class in Ohio State history, arguably probably not Urban's best class because he had that crazy class at Florida where he had like seven or eight or nine kids who were the number one players in their different states. And it wasn't quite that, but it was the culmination because he had that 2013 class, which was also ranked number two in the country. Joey Bosa, Ezekiel Elliott, Vaughn Bell. We know those guys. And they turned it into a national championship. Then 2017 was doing it again, right? So it felt like, okay, this Chase Young, Jeff Okuda class is matching that 2013 class. But then 18 was dropping another class just like it on top of it. That was the thing of like, holy moly, this is now not like a every couple years kind of thing. All year with 2017, we talked about this is the best class Ohio State's ever seen. And then 2018 was just as good. And that was the difference, that now you're stockpiling these things, that now you feel like you're Bama. Now you do it every year, which is, again, a little bit of where we are getting now, I think, with the 2021 class and what the 2022 class might be. It feels very similar. To me, this 2021 class – that is wrapping up is like the 17 class a little bit more and then 2022 might be like 18. But at that moment, I again, to recap, these are all the things we go in on this first Wednesday in February. These are all the things that are happening or that are discussed. Cause I just read the transcript again of the urban Meyer news conference. Urban Meyer is asked about his health and how long he's going to be around. And he says, I don't know where this is coming from. I'm great. I don't know who's putting that out there. If that's getting put out in recruiting, you know, that's not true because that was on the heels of in December when Jackson Carmen, the Ohio tackle had signed with Clemson. It had come up Dabo Sweeney saying to Jackson Carmen, I don't know how long urban's going to be around. So that's one thing that's going on. It's urban Meyer who it turns out is beginning his final year as Ohio state's head coach saying my health is not an issue. The second thing that's happening is, Ryan Day is, has been wooed by the Tennessee Titans. He, is in, he had been at Ohio State for one year as the offensive coordinator. Mike Vrabel is the new head coach in Tennessee. He's trying to hire Ryan Day as the offensive coordinator. Ohio State is in the midst of keeping Ryan Day, and they do so by elevating Ryan Day and Greg Schiano to become the first million-dollar assistants in Ohio State program history. So they are in the process of keeping Ryan Day. That's another thing that gets brought up on this day. Boy, oh boy, wouldn't it be different if they didn't keep Ryan Day? Another thing that just happened, Kerry Combs just left. Kerry Combs is wooed by Mike Vrabel, and he leaves. And Urban Meyer, on this, second, on this first Wednesday in February, talks about how shocked he was by the departure of Kerry Combs. And it came out of nowhere. And best of luck to Kerry, but they're going to miss him. And he kind of can't believe that it happened. 
He also is asked about the looming quarterback battle in the spring, which will entail Dwayne Haskins and Joe Burrow, and which will lead to Joe Burrow leaving and later winning the Heisman Trophy, winning a national championship, and being the number one pick in the draft. That's like an ancillary, hey, uh, you got a quarterback thing coming in a couple months? Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Nobody's ahead. It was Dwayne ahead, I think, is what Urban was actually asked that day. No, nobody's ahead. So that's also happening, which is one of the craziest things in college football history. Also happening, again, it is the, the first day of the early signing period. Ohio State winds up with 26 players in this class, in this 2018 class. 22 of them signed in the early signing period. 21 of them publicly, and I think Tyreek Smith had kind of sort of signed, but didn't exactly announce it, but we didn't know it. So what has happened? Chris Olave and Tyler Friday sign on this day, but they, they had made their decision. So that was known, okay, that they had not signed in December. But they're waiting on two guys. They're waiting on two guys that are announcing on the late signing period day in February. One is Javante Jean-Baptiste, four-star defensive end from New Jersey, who they get. The other is Nicholas Petit-Frere, who becomes the best player in the class. He's a top 10 national player from Florida. Greg Schiano locks him down. They sign Nicholas Petit-Frere on this day. There are 400 questions about Nicholas Petit-Frere because he is the news of the day. He is the news of the day. And there are a ton of questions about Greg Schiano because Greg Schiano is super important in the recruitment of Petit Frere. His sons went to the same high school in Florida. Schiano was a volunteer assistant there. He's also super important in a bunch of other recruitments. Urban Meyer is talking about how Greg Schiano is like the most important recruiter on the staff, how he can't live without Greg Schiano. Greg Schiano almost left for Tennessee. In this period, Tennessee Volunteers, that didn't happen. Alex Grinch is coming in. It's this weird crossover. And we, at this point, do not know. All Urban talks about is how invaluable Greg Schiano is. We do not know that in the coming season, Greg Schiano is going to drive this defense into a ditch. But on this day, Greg Schiano is a hero. So that's what's happening. It's sort of like not that big of a deal. It's a, again, we don't have, we're not having a, a, a news conference now. I mean, not just because of COVID. I mean, it's like, what are you having a news conference for? Nothing's happening, right? I mean, it's like this. They've not, already talked about this signing class. Everybody who, yeah, it, it's If been they done. add one guy, I mean, maybe we, I don't know. We talk about it at some point, but it's not like the, hey, it's signing day kind of thing anymore. But this is what was happening three years ago on the first Wednesday in February as the final pieces of this 2018 recruiting class were coming together and Ohio State was preparing for a 2018 season that would change the program forever. And by the way, we also don't know the Zach Smith stuff is a couple of months away from blowing up at this point. It's interesting how much of this is a parallel, actually. I mean, the quarterback battle that's looming that we're going to be asking Ryan Day about this entire time. The fact that there's a five-star still out. There's literally two people left for Ohio State to add to a recruiting class, and they're both pretty highly rated guys. John Davis, who will actually pick a school on Wednesday, which is, by the time you guys hear this, he'll probably, by the time most of you guys have heard this, he'll probably have already announced. And then JT Tumala, who anytime between now and April will be deciding as well. So it's just interesting how many, you know, Kerry Combs is back, and it doesn't seem like he's going anywhere this time. So it just seems like some interesting parallels between a very important moment in Ohio State football's history and almost not equally as important, but a very important moment for Ryan Day in his early tenure as Ohio State's head coach. 
And Steven I is- will say the, the, the other guy, I just want to throw out real quick. They had three guys that after the early signing period in December, three guys that Ohio State was still in on. They got two of the three. The one they didn't get was Rashid Walker, a, left, a tackle who picked Penn State. And now after three years, he's a two-year starter at Penn State already. He, he, was, he redshirted and then as a redshirt freshman and as a redshirt sophomore has been the starting left tackle at Penn State. So that's, I mean, that's what, you know, you get these guys late. They can make huge differences for your class, even when your, your class is really elite. And Stephen, I, I'm curious, like, now is the, again, is the guy who covers recruiting the closest for us. The, the way that you feel like fans look at recruiting now, how much of it feels like it's based on that back-to-back achievement, getting those two classes back-to-back? Because as Doug said, that sort of sets, I think, the expectation that the modern Ohio State fan has for what is supposed to happen every December, January when they're bringing these guys in. It's the Clemson, Alabama thing all over again. You think you want, you want in every way possible to be on that tier, on the field, in the classroom, and recruiting. And these, you're competing with these guys on the field trying to win national championships by going through these guys. What starts in the recruiting trail, if they're constantly having better recruiting classes than you, then ideally enough, when those recruiting classes finally pay off, you get results like you did with – this past national championship game where it's 52 to 24 because I mean the number one and number two recruiting classes from the 20, the 2017 season, four years later, those are the number one and number two teams in the country and on on the field this year. So it is, it's, I think that, but also just when you set that expectation of, okay, this is the level we're going to recruit at. It's no different than when you win a national championship. Okay. This is the level we're going to compete at now. So this is what fans come to expect now, especially when you're getting five stars from all over the place. And you're not just getting the Jock Sawyer because he's 15 minutes down the road. By the way, they also were at 89 after this signing day. So they were four over their scholarship limit. So we always talk about, hey, you know, I mean, they, they pushed it a little bit to get Petit Frere and Javante Jean-Baptiste in this class. 26 in the class, and it pushed them to 89. Which, which they're at right now. But, right. but in, to this time, they're, at a, they're really only in at a 85. different way. Right. Yeah. Right. They're at 85, but, but, just, but they're at 85 hoping to be at 87 because they're trying to add two other guys. Right, and, and still, who knows who's coming and going other than that. So we talked on the Tuesday pod also about how class size plays into that ranking and that there are years where it's tough to go by that overall number because everybody isn't judged by the equal number of size. Ohio State's average class size for the past five years, I think it's 22. This was kind of the outlier. They had 26, as Doug said, in this class for an average star rating of 94.29. Do you guys know where that ranked nationally that year? The average star rating? Where did it rank? I think the average star rating was first. It was number one. So even though it was a big class and that bigger class helped push them up the rankings somewhat ahead of some other teams that maybe had lesser. I know uh, because it was 94.29 Georgia and USC were both 94.23 Now Georgia also had 26 signees. USC only had 18, but I think 17 of them were five or four stars. So that's why their average star rating was so high, but that's, but Ohio state and Georgia were both so much ahead of them in the, the overall ranking because the, the class was just so big. But I think that also just says again, how talented this class was perceived to be. Like th- that you could have a huge class, but then also still be the highest average star rating. That's a, that is an, a combination that I think sets the stage for people that, that, that sets those expectations for people. So all of that leads into the first of the five survey questions. So again, thanks to those of you who 
fill this out, especially those of you who filled it out twice because the first one went out um, botched. The first survey question was basically just in general, how do you feel about Ohio State's 2018 signing class? The three options were, it was a great class to set the foundation for how good Ohio State could be four years later now in 2021. Second option, the class may have underachieved its ranking a little bit, but Ohio State recruits so well annually that a few misses in this class are not a concern. And the third option, the class has underachieved, and if that doesn't change, it's the reason Ohio State might not be playoff caliber in 2021. What do you guys feel like of those three options? Which one would you pick? I think it's undoubtedly the third one. 100%. The third one. That it is underachieved, and if it does not change in 2021, it can hold Ohio State back from being playoff caliber. 100%. I would not hesitate to vote for that. Yeah, I'm – I'd be shocked if less than 75%, maybe even 80% of the people voted for that. Why do you feel like, uh, why do you feel like it's, it's an underachievement of the class rather than, and this gets into a semantic argument, I suppose, but rather than a, a, a miss by the re- recruiting people who gave them those rankings? Or, or, oh, or no, that, oh, no, no, no. That's not even worth debating. That what that we're, the the ranking were too high. That's the point. Well, but but that sets the stage for why a class is perceived to underachieve, right? Yeah, but those rank. I mean, I, you can't blame the rankings. Those rankings are usually right most of the times. I mean, the the point of the matter is it it underachieves because when you look at the three five stars in this class, only one of them has been any. None, neither of them, not not one of them, has been a five star level player at Ohio State, and the closest one to that is Nicholas Petit Frere. The other two. Uh, Teron Vincent's obviously been dealing with some injuries, and the other guy has just literally been a miss, complete and utter miss. And that's no, Tyler I just, Johnson. We can't even go down that road. I mean, how do we even know? How do you? I mean, what? The rankings are what they are, and then it's do you live up to the rankings or not? You can't question the rankings, or there's like no point to any of this. Right, and I was obviously using the rankings to, to, to explain why this was. I was just trying to put. A, I was just trying to find a way out there to help you guys say exactly what you meant by underachieve. So by the, by the vote of our tech subscribers, 64% voted for the middle option. It was an okay right. class. Maybe it underachieved a bit, but Ohio State recruits so well annually that a few misses are not a concern. Now, there are a couple of things I think might affect why they ultimately feel that way. One is that this team did get to the playoff two years in a row with this class as being a part of it played for a national championship. The other thing, and the other thing that we haven't brought up yet so far is that technically Justin Fields is a 28 class of 2018 recruit, not an Ohio state class of 2018 recruit, but was a 2018 national prospect and his emergence and the success that Ohio state had with him these past two seasons doesn't necessarily get attached to this class, but it definitely colors the amount of success his team had and maybe changes the perception of what this class has achieved because it had him along with it as did the 2017 class as did the 2019 class i think we have to make a decision on justin fields like i don't conclude him but i know no, he doesn't include so, he doesn't but i'm saying that i think that that it, he is included in the success that this program had the past two seasons which again i think is what when, when people say ohio state recruits well enough so well annually that a few misses are not a concern that's part of what they're saying there is that you can go get guys like that. And the guys that you followed up with in 2019 and not so much 2020, they didn't make a big impact this past season. I agree with you, Doug, that 
I don't include him in the 2018 class. But going forward, I mean, he's not going to be the last guy to go to a school and then transfer after a year and then spend the bulk of his time with another program. And Justin Fields is a Buckeye. The, the Georgia thing is like a guy, at, it's like in the pros, where you see a guy at the end of his career in a random jersey that doesn't make any sense. He's an Ohio State guy. So at some point, I do think we have to revisit this with whoever that next guy is. I think at some – almost – He's an add-on to the class at this point because well, it's, but, it's not but like he's a program player. But it's not a, it, we're not having a program. I mean, we are having a program discussion. In a recruiting discussion, I don't include him in recruiting. They didn't right. know he was going to come. He wasn't part of the discussion this day. They were wrapping up the class, and he wasn't in it. So I don't include him in, discussion, in the discussion. If, if the idea is Ohio State's so good, and in the transfer portal world, if they have a couple holes caused by recruiting, they will always be able to fill them. So I am not going to like label a class or a, as a miss. I'm not going to get too wound up if this number two ranked class doesn't quite produce the superstars as, as expected because there's always another superstar around the corner that they can go grab. If that's the discussion, and Justin Fields is the example of that, and Jonah Jackson's an example of that, and Trey Sermon's an example of that, well, I don't know how you could dispute that right now. I will... Maybe I'm old-fashioned. I would be nervous to rely on that. But that may be old-fashioned because there are always going to be guys in the portal, good players, and they're always going to be interested in Ohio State. So why not? I mean, like, it's not like you miss on purpose or it's not like you necessarily don't take a high school kid. But maybe that's not as much of a backup option as I still think of it. Maybe it is a primary option. It's just a different primary option, which takes a little bit of pressure off the initial high school recruiting class. It creates an almost penalty-free world for when you have misses at that but, point because you but can then that's, plug and play. But that's the interesting discussion. Was, was it penalty-free that this class didn't completely live up to its expectations yet, which we'll get to it a little bit later. But 64% – pick that middle option. And as Doug always points out, it's more interesting to then look at the extremes. So which of the two extremes here wins out? And I think this answer more than anything tells you everything you need to know about why this class is so weird. 19% agreed with you guys. The class is underachieved and it does not change. In and if it does not change 2021, it can hold Ohio State back from being playoff caliber. 17% say it was a great class that set the foundation for how good Ohio State can be in 2021. So only a, a difference of five votes, a difference of 2%. So essentially tied, split between whether they think it is the reason Ohio State could be really good in 2021 or that if this class doesn't shape up, it's the reason Ohio State might fall off in 2021. And, but when you look at this class on paper, that, that vote almost makes sense to me, that people are maybe torn either way because it's a, it's a class that clearly has not individually lived up to those rankings but at the same time, if Ohio State's good in 2021, you can see where a lot of these players fit into that. I think what makes this class weird is, and I'm pretty sure we're going to get into this later, is that it's got some really bad misses, but it also has the ultimate hidden gem in Chris Olave. It has one. It has one hidden gem. Right. But when at the top of the class, you've got a guy. Chris Olave is the third lowest rated guy in this class, but then the third highest rated guy in this class. It kind of, they flipped. Well, but Ohio State doesn't go in counting on hidden gems. Ohio State goes in counting on our five stars are, are going to carry us, and you hope you hit that hidden gem that elevates everything else. And in this class, it's turned out that the hidden gem is the guy who has emerged as the, the clear star of this class, which is a question we'll get to later. But 
it's it's those other guys that haven't hit at that level that were, was expected on signing day. We're going to take a break here, and we're going to come back after the break. We're going to start getting into some in discussions about the individual players of this 2018 class when we come back on Buckeye Talk. All right, we're back on Buckeye Talk. And as I said last week, I, I wrote down uh, – I wrote a piece that sort of broke down this class. And I, I, I broke it down into segments of this 2018 signing class. Who fits into these different categories? Every class is going to have some attrition. This class has lost five people that just didn't continue their Ohio State careers and went on to either somewhere else. Uh, I guess in all cases, they went on to, to somewhere else eventually. Uh, the five players they lost, uh, Jalen Gill was the number 30 overall player in the country. Didn't really have a role here with the way this receiving class or receiving room was going. He transferred to Boston College, had a solid season last year. Uh, running back Brian Sneed, the number 80 overall player, was kicked out of school following a sexual assault allegation investigation. Uh, receiver LeChristian Smith transferred to Cincinnati. You guys know him as Blue. I don't know him as Blue. <laughs> You're saying the, the readers know him as Blue. That's that's great. I, that's a great nickname. I covered a kid at uh, Danville High School, um, multi-sport athlete, many, many years ago named Juan Robinson, which was already a great name, but he went by Blue. Um, Matthew Baldwin, the, the quarterback of this class, ranked number 331 overall. He transferred to TCU and then ultimately retired from football. And defensive end Alex Williams was number 615, and he transferred to Vanderbilt, um, I believe, last summer. It was pretty quickly after I uh, had taken this job. So um didn't had a very quick uh move, move on to 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 kind of go somewhere else with his career but that's to have those five guys leave it kind of goes back to that transition that uh transfer discussion we were having the other day that other than brian sneed you i don't know that any of those guys left a big hole here and even that one it's not as if he transferred out because ohio state wasn't using him correctly. I mean, there were other circumstances that kicked him out of school and, and he couldn't continue playing here. So I don't even, that's a, even, that's a different kind of, it's not really a recruiting miss in some ways, although I guess we can argue about that, but I don't know that any of those five guys you're looking back here in 2021 and saying, what could Ohio state be if it still had one of those guys or if. Well, I mean, they don't miss Jalen Gill, as you said, because they kind of changed who they are and they have so many receivers. I mean, Jalen Gill was a big dude at the time. I mean, like that's like a borderline five-star guy from the Columbus suburbs who's the highest-rated skill player in the class and did not did not do anything here. So, like, yes, I agree. And, again, it's the, it depends on the discussion we're having. You know, did it affect them long-term? No, they were fine. Like, they didn't – it's like, oh, if Jalen Gill would have worked out perfectly, what would he have been this year? Like, I don't know. I guess he would have been the slot receiver. It's like, they had Garrett Wilson in the slot in the 2019 class, who was awesome as a sophomore. It's a borderline All-American candidate. So, yeah, it, it worked out okay. But, I mean, I do think when you go – when you look at the skill players in this class, again, Olave is huge, but there's not a lot else going on here. I mean, Ruckert is – Ruckert um, is, is everything you want. They just don't use him much. But, you know – Impact skill guys, quarterback, running back, receiver. It 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 does. There's a lot of guys here that didn't quite work out the way you thought. So yeah, you can I even just, throw Cameron Babb into that mix. Top 100 wide receiver who has had some injury problems the entire time he's been here. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to him along with uh, one of the other categories later. Because then I started breaking down the guys who fit into the categories of players who are still here. So my next one was ready for the show, and I felt like these were there are five guys on this roster who I think have proven themselves NFL-ready 
right now. Like they could go make a roster in the NFL this fall, in my opinion. And that was Tommy Togiai, number 55. Nicholas petit Frere, the number seven overall player in the class. Tyreek Smith, the number 34 overall player in the class. Jeremy Ruckert, number 37. And then the hidden gem, Chris Olave, number 399 in the class. And it's it's one of the just the weird things about this class. Like, so Togiai didn't even become a starter until this past season. He's the only guy who is leaving after only three years to go on to the NFL. Everyone else was – all those other four guys were, I guess, considered at least – options to potentially go even Tyreek Smith who I think you know statistically didn't like blow people away this year but I think has has shown up uh well reviewed on a lot of scouting situations and you've got a class that had you know multiple guys and you know this class has one two three four like four five other guys in the top 50 who have done almost nothing in their careers like you would have expected on signing day I think you would have if you had taken a survey, how many of these guys do you think you're going to leave after three years? It would have been a number a whole lot higher than one, right? No, I think that's that's a component of what we're talking about here is that, again, compared to the 2017 class that had three guys in Young, Okuda, and Dobbins who clearly were going to turn pro after three years and were 100% ready for the league and were the second pick, the third pick, and I think the 55th pick. And this this class is just not anywhere close to that. And it's one of those things – like on one hand, is it fair during this discussion to constantly compare the 2018 guys to the 2017 guys? Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, like that's the whole point. They're very similar classes. And I think in the end, we'll get around to the discussion of what effect did the two classes back to back have on each other. But if, if this discussion is okay, I think Chase was in the 20s. Tyreek Smith is in the 30s. But if you look at them, they're both defensive ends. They're both very highly rated. They're both very talented players. And nobody would say that Tyreek Smith is like a disappointment or has, is, you know, he is a very good player. But if you look at him where he is right now after three years at Ohio State compared to where Chase Young was after three years at Ohio State, it's not even in the ballpark. So that's uh, that affects the grading of this class. There are a lot of guys in the 2018 class who are pretty good, who are. They're solid players, but they are not in the ballpark of what some of the 2017 guys did who were first-team All-Big Ten or All-Americans or multi-year starters or first-round NFL draft picks. And that the top end of this class is where you fall short. And it happens sometimes when we do this. Whenever we talk on this podcast and we are using the Ohio State bar, right? What's the threshold for how we're judging this? We're judging it by like the history of Ohio State, which is filled with All-Americans and first-round picks and Hall of Famers and unbelievable players. So that's the bar. Nobody's saying these guys aren't good players. But in the litany of, you know, development and high-end talent, it's the, the 18 class right now is just nowhere near where the 17 class was at the same time a year ago. In the interest is to look at it from a second year's perspective, a lot of those 2017 guys in year two, 2018, they were at least in roles, even if they weren't necessarily the, the starter, they were in a rotational position, whether it was Chase Young, Chase Young was started. It was him and Nick Bosa and then Jonathan Cooper with the three defensive ends. Jeff Okuda on the outside was in that rotation with those, with those cornerbacks. J.K. Dobbins was a starting running back here. You look at the top end guys in the 2018 class in 2019. I mean, there was Jalen Gill wasn't blocked. 
he could have, if he would have been developing, he would have easily been the second slot receiver alongside KJ Hill. We were talking all offseason, is Nicholas Petit Frere going to beat Brandon Bowen out for that starting right tackle job? It just didn't happen. Outside of the linebackers, a lot of these guys had roles that they could have stepped into in their second year, and they just didn't do it. So one of the things, again, I talk about this story a lot, the 2017 class. Okay, I'm going to make sure I have this straight. Before the 2018 season, I talked to the guys in the 2017 class about whether they could do what the 2013 class had done which is pop as a national title contender in their second year on the back of these sophomores, right? So what happened with the 2013 class with the Joey Bosa, Ezekiel Elliott, Darren Lee, Vaughn Bell, Eli Apple class, they popped in year two and won the national championship and then came back in year three. The 2017 class did not pop that way in year two. They played, as Steven said, they did find roles, but they didn't all explode. And then Ohio State was very, very good, but a flawed team in some ways still in 2018. They really popped in year three in 2019, okay? So these are the three great classes of the urban era. 2013 class pops in year two. 2017 class pops in year three. As it turns out, this 2018 class didn't pop in year two. Didn't do much of anything in year two. Was like, okay, there were some guys who helped in year three, but if they are going to pop, it's going to be in year four. So that is where the distinction is going to be of these three elite classes, 13, 17, and 18. Everybody has their own timeline, but that clearly is, is what has happened here. And, and actually, and this is what we're getting around to, there's a possibility it does. There's a possibility it does pop for many, many of these guys, and that by the end of the 2021 season, we will look at this 2018 class and say, oh, man, they had some dudes in there. It just took them a little longer to show it. Yeah, that gets us into these these next couple tiers that I had uh, sectioned off here. So my next group down was frontline performers. So guys who have established themselves as starters um, or, 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 or we look at them as like clear too deep guys, like foundational guys almost Josh Proctor at number 71 Tyler Friday at number 93 Javante Jean Baptiste number 219 seven banks number 221 Master Teague number 228 and Marcus Hooker number 640 he's maybe the borderline one but a guy who had a starting job at the beginning of last season started the first five games it feels like he is probably still set up for some kind of a two deep spot going into 2021 so that's still you're getting pretty deep into this class and you're still seeing guys who have have some kind of a role but it leaves a huge group in this last group which is the undecided so you're going into the fourth season and then by my count you still have almost 10 guys out of 26 who you don't really know what to make of where they are right now now that's a little bit unfair because there's a couple guys on here who were blocked and you you see the the next place that they're going in their career and where they fit in for 2021 more easily than ever before partially by, by probably no fault of their own. But here's my list of the undecideds. That's Tron Vincent, number 21, Tyreek Johnson. I'm sorry, he was number 20. Tyreek Johnson, number 21, Taraja Mitchell, number 44, Matthew Jones, number 68, Cameron Babb, number 73, Max Ray, number 121, Dallas Gant, number 166, Kayvon Pope, number 217, Cameron Brown, number 323. But again, that group includes let's see, one, two, like at least three, if not four or five guys, maybe even six, who you could 
see as starters on opening day 2021. And I think that's maybe the, what demonstrates most what's still hanging out there for this class, as Doug was just saying. Like, there's still so much potential for this class to make a big impact this year. It's just a matter of what happens between now and September 2nd. I think I'm, I think there's more potential. I guess this is maybe the whole point. There's more potential in the question marks than there are in the solid starters, actually. Yep. Because when you look at Teron Vincent, Taraja Mitchell, Matthew Jones, Dallas Gant, and Cam Brown, that to me is five guys that like absolutely could not only win starting jobs, but do something this year that we have never seen before for them. Whether it's because of injury in the case of guys like Brown and Vincent, whether it's because of sort of being blocked in the case of Mitchell and Jones and Gant, I think that is on the table for five of those guys. And if like three or four of them really pop, it changes the perception of the class. Whereas some of the other guys, it's like, you know, Master Teague, we're kind of waiting for maybe his role to be reduced because there are better younger guys behind him. You know, Tyler Friday and Javante Jean-Baptiste, I think, are fine rotational guys, but I don't know that they're ever going to be game changers at defensive end. And I think we're kind of curious, how does Jack Sawyer work in there with guys like that, you know? So I think that is, there are some dudes in that question mark thing that really will be, I think the final decision makers on how we view this class in the end. Cause I mean, do you want to tell me, we've been talking about Tron Vincent for two years. You want to tell me Tron Vincent's all big 10 this year. I'll buy it. And if Tron Vincent's all big 10 in year four changes what we think of 2018. Yeah, and it's like as I pointed out in the article, like what's the most surprising thing that Chris Olave developed into a first round pick after three years, or which which is what we thought he might be, or that there are top two top twenty five players in this class in Teron Vincent and Tyree Johnson that have combined to start zero games in their first three seasons. And as you were saying before, Doug, it's like it's it's the comparison against what Ohio State already has been. It's not really just comparing them to those recruiting rankings because those float around and change depending on who you ask but it's just like the guy you know x player was recruited and at this position and ranked this way and he went on to do this i think this is obviously most maybe apparent in in the way we look at tyreek johnson and then y player was recruited at roughly the same ranking same position and he's done this and th that's how we compare these guys it's comparing them to just their their very immediate predecessors in a lot of ways so I asked two survey questions that, that, that fill in, kind of follow up on, on these segment, these sections that I was just talking about. So as of signing day for the 2018 class, so that February day, I guess you're talking about, or even the December one, which top 60 player did you think would have the best chance to declare for the NFL draft after his third year? This is a question I asked the tech subscribers. I gotta find the answer. The best chance to declare after his third year. The op options were, Nicholas Petit-Ferrer, Teron Vincent, Tyreek Johnson, Jalen Gill, Tyreek Smith, Jeremy Ruckert, Taraja Mitchell, and Tommy Chogiai. I intentionally left Chris Olave off there because I thought it would have left an opportunity for too many people to lie and try to say that they knew that the number 399 recruit in the country was going to be a first-round pick after three years on signing day. Um, who do you guys think out of those eight op options won the poll? I think Teron Vincent, but I could see if people thought maybe uh, Tyreek Johnson, just because he's a five-star in the position he plays and at the time 
Kerry Combs hadn't, I, it, I, if I believe Kerry Combs hadn't left yet when he originally committed. Yeah, Kerry Combs was still a, a coach here when he committed here. I'll say Tyreek Smith as like the next guy up in the defensive end hierarchy. So those guys were two and three, Teron Vincent and Tyreek Smith. The, but actually the kind of runaway winner was Nicholas Petit Frere. And I think that's because he was the number one ranked guy, right? I mean, he's the number seven overall recruit in the class. He was the number one offensive tackle in the country in that class. I think at the time, people still maybe don't know exactly what Thayer Munford is. And we're asking people to like think back where they were four years ago. That can be difficult. So that affects what answers are given here but if you think back to that day aren't you maybe even thinking in 2018 that Nixon Petit Frere is the guy who's going to be the left tackle for the next three years or two you know coming up and not Thayer Munford oh for sure yeah 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 I mean what Munford became um is, is where you thought Nicholas Petit Frere was I mean listen Nicholas Petit Frere at the time they got him now listen it is a little bit of a different thing that it didn't come out of nowhere, but it's a Florida guy. It's not, you know, he, he signed on signing day. You didn't have as much as that. that felt. I think there was a time when it felt like maybe it wasn't going to go Ohio State's way. So compared to Paris Johnson, I don't think Ohio State fans were as familiar with him. But, like, the way we're thinking about Paris Johnson right now is like, listen, we're thinking, like, I mean, of course probably this guy's going to start somewhere as a sophomore, and then he'll be a tackle for sure as a junior at the very least, and then he might go because he's rare. I mean, Petit Frere was almost almost at that level when you have the number one tackle in the country. And again, when you look at what Jackson Carmen did at Clemson, right, Stephen? I mean, like Jackson Carmen was sort of like, okay, they missed on the number one tackle in Ohio, so they got the number one tackle in the Florida, who is actually rated even higher nationally. Jackson Carmen seized a role at Clemson much more quickly than Nicholas Petit Frere seized a role at Ohio State, and guess where Jackson Carmen's headed right now, right? I mean, Jackson Carmen left for the NFL draft. So that was that, the, that's the path you thought Petit Frere might be on. And that was the story when we got to Arizona. That was the, one of the first things that we talked about is the fact that Jackson Carmen is in year two. He's the starting left tackle for Clemson, and he's hey, this is the guy that's going to have to deal with Chase Young for the game. And what are they going to do? Are they just going to let Jackson Carmen handle Chase Young and hope for the best that a five star is going up against another five star? Do they try to double Chase Young? And he pretty much held up his own against the number two pick in the NFL draft. Now, obviously, not as great this year, but they had a younger offensive line. But yeah. Nicholas Petit Frere, you brought up Paris Johnson as well. He has a higher star rating than both of those guys. Both uh, Paris Johnson's is nine nine five three, Nicholas Petit Frere is nine nine six three, and Jackson Carmen's a nine eight nine four. So of the, if you just looked at the star ratings when they were coming out, you would clearly think Nicholas Petit Frere was going to be the best of the group. And yet now, I think he probably has clearly the lowest expectations three years later. Also, it turns out he was skinny. Yeah. And all the food stories that everybody's written about Nicholas Petit Frere, he, as it turned out, which maybe people should have realized in the moment, maybe not, I don't know. I mean, he's a supreme athlete, but he had a ways to go with his body when he got to college that maybe those other guys didn't quite have as far to go. And so we, again, he really had to bulk up. And by year three, he got there and he played awesome. But that it didn't happen quite as fast Actually, in the end, maybe it actually sort of made sense. And to that point, according to the 247, what their high school sizes were, Nicholas Petrie Fair, 6'6", 271, Jackson Carmen, 6'6", 330. Wow. And then uh, Paris Johnson is 6'7", 290. So, yeah, 
much longer way to go to get to being able to play football, especially in the Big Ten. Yeah, I mean, sometimes real football does interfere on the, the, the ranking stuff and, and, and have a determination of where some of these guys ends up. Um, another question I asked, it was actually the fifth question on the poll, but I want to include it here because, again, I think it gives some, some perspective on, on how we're talking about everybody. Rank these class of 2018 signees from most to least by how much they have exceeded your expectations. And the five that I put were Seven Banks, Javante Jean-Baptiste, Marcus Hooker, Chris Olave, Master Teague. Obviously, the clear runaway winner there, Chris Olave, 1.04. So that means somebody here didn't rank him number one, which is shocking to me, um, but hardly anybody did. Uh, the number two guy, Seven Banks. Number three guy, Master Teague. Number four guy, Javante Jean-Baptiste. And the number five guy, Marcus Hooker. But I wanted to talk specifically about Master Teague for a minute because he was the second highest running back in this class on signing day. As we said before, Brian Snead, number one, who didn't work out. And you had a guy right in front of him in J.K. Dobbins, who obviously the expectations were high. And at the time he came in, you even still had um, Mike Weber in front of him, too. So the running back situation for Teague to make an impact was a little bit limited, I think, on signing day. But then very quickly, by the time I get here in 2019, he ends up playing – I know it's just a backup role – but having kind of an impact very quickly. And I think that's one of the other interesting things about signing day is you don't know where guys are going to sl slot in because the ground can shift a lot just in that first year. I actually think so. Like in terms of exceeding expectations, I mean, obviously Olave's number one in this list. I don't, I, nobody else exceeded my expectations. I mean, I think they are, I don't, I don't know what, you know, like it's fine. Like no, like even seven banks, I think was in the three hundreds and it's like, he's a starter. It's like, okay, well that's, I mean, that makes sense. It's not like he's, you know, he didn't turn into Jeff Okuda from the three hundreds, but I think Teague actually is a great example of this class actually. So he gets here and for two years, he's blocked for lack of a better word by a player from the 17 class. Who's better. And as you said, in 18, when he's a true freshman in 18, he has two guys ahead of him. They have the Dobbins-Weber rotation. Master Teague's not going to work in there. Nobody expects that. 2019, they lean on Dobbins. Master Teague makes third team all Big Ten as a backup, playing garbage time, right? Is right on track. And then in year three, and the Achilles injury in spring practice obviously is a factor here and throws it off to some degree. But they were going to get Trey Sermon anyway, right? I mean, I think... By the time Master Teague, in 2020, it was set up for the 2018 class to fill the running back spot, right, for this team. And Brian Sneed was gone, and Master Teague wasn't quite exactly everything you were necessarily looking for if you're Ohio State. So you go get Trey Sermon. And then Master Teague is very solid. When he plays, he's very solid. But when Trey Sermon goes nuts at the end of the year, it's like, oh, that's something that Master Teague was just never going to do. At 100% healthy, that's not Master Teague's deal. And I think that, in a lot of ways, is the 2018 class. It doesn't mean that Master Teague is not a good player. He's a very solid player. But is he the starting running back on a national championship team? Like 2020 was clearly set up where Brian Sneed was going to be the starting running back and Master Teague was going to be his spellback. And that's why you go get a guy in the top 100 and then you go get a guy in the lower 200s like that. It was almost – I'm pretty sure it wasn't pitched exactly like that, but that idea of 
one guy's a starter and another guy's a spell from the same class makes sense, especially when you're coming off of J.K. Dobbins. I'm also – he didn't exceed expectations as far as his production on the field, obviously, but as far as his usage, maybe he exceeded some expectations because I don't know if anybody on the day of signing day is saying that Marcus Hooker is going to beat out Josh Proctor, a top 100 guy who's the only player from Oklahoma to ever come to Ohio State. He's going to beat him out to be the starting safety. I don't. So from that, I, I, maybe that's it's more who exceeded your expectations or who, who ended up getting on the field first. Because there's a, a lot of guys in this class where I don't know if you would say that. No, I mean that's to be fair to Marcus Hooker. As you said, Alex Williams was in this class. He was a local kid that kind of took a local kid that has a, had a spot late. There weren't a lot of expectations for Alex Williams, and he transferred to Vanderbilt. Marcus Hooker was rated below him. Marcus Hooker's the last, the lowest rated guy in this class, and becomes a starter. So that is exceeding expectations. It just turns out when he became a starter, most people thought he didn't play that well. But is that on him? Or is that on that's probably not a guy who you think ever should have been put in that situation? And to your point on Teague, Stephen, I think you make a good point. I think – how do I say this? I think the, the departure of Brian Sneed, because it was not – football related right and it's those situations are always difficult to analyze it's it's not good all around right as nathan explained at the beginning there were allegations against him and he left the program i think because you you don't want to talk about it in an uneducated way or an unfair way to anybody involved either the people who ever accused him or anything or to brian sneed who you know, is accused of something, but what do we all, what do we know that happened, right? So you kind of, we just don't talk about it that much. The Brian Sneed absence is probably the most, as a result, the most underrated absence at Ohio State in the last four classes, right? That it, as you said, Stephen, he probably is the guy and it throws off, there's sort of this chain reaction. It's a super important position. You know, then they don't get the guys in the 2020 class and it sort of shows up that you're really missing the 2018 guy even more, you end up putting it more on the second guy in Teague in 2018. And the result is if, if you had just recruited a running back and who's a top 100 player who had performed as you would expect the top 100 running back to perform, a lot of this would have been fixed, right? That Trey Sermon wound up coming in to be Brian Sneed and it got a little nuts along the way um, when actually that was, just the way things worked out actually was a kind of a big loss sort of in the puzzle pieces of the Ohio State roster. And it's almost the same thing in 2021 when you look at it now is you've got two guys coming in to, to fill a specific role within that running back room. One is clearly supposed to be the starter and the other one's supposed to be the spellback and maybe you use them some different ways. We'll see. But if you lose one of those guys, especially the higher rated guy, it throws everything out of balance. Regardless of how you lost him, just losing him in general, you put a lot more onus on the, on the lower rated guy to be something that he was never supposed to be in the be- to begin. And to be but, fair, I think a, a lot of people at the time thought Master Teague actually was underrated as a recruit. He didn't do a ton of camps. And, and, and again, it's one of these things. I'm not going to, I'm always going to throw the caveat. He is a good player. All these guys are good players. We are not saying they are not good players. It's the context that we're talking about, but some of it is, Sometimes you get set up for criticism by either overachieving, 
and putting yourself in a situation people didn't expect you to be in or by having circumstances around you force you into a situation that people didn't expect you to be in. And then all of a sudden you're a starter at Ohio State and people are saying, how come you're not Malik Hooker? How come you're not Ezekiel Elliott? And it's like, well, listen, man, were you ever going to be Malik Hooker or Ezekiel Elliott? And it's kind of not fair. Well, I mean, so much of the way that we think about Marcus Hooker is directly tied into the other safety in this class, Josh Proctor, being good but not great to this point, right? Like if he had come out and really forced the issue from the beginning of this season then and, and taken that starting job. But, but that gets into another point I wanted to make, which is, Doug, you mentioned early on uh, when you were kind of recapping what was happening 2017, 2018, about it's being kind of the last hurrah of the Urban Meyer era, sort of, that t- signing day 2018. And the changes that happened in the transition between Urban Meyer and Ryan Day's regimes affect how we look at several players, I feel like, on this team. Um, you can take that. I'll even include Tyreek Johnson in that. At the time, Ohio State was drafting, or not drafting, recruiting towards a defense that started two corners. And I know they would rotate that. Now you start three cornerbacks. And I think the fact that Tyreek Johnson almost can't get on to it too deep on any of those three spots is one of the reasons why we look at him the way we do at, at this stage. Jalen Gill, you already mentioned. At the time, they were recruiting to an offense that used that position that was of the H-back, the Urban Meyer H-back, by the time Ryan Day took over, that was pretty much a thing of the past. K.J. Hill wasn't really that anymore in a lot of ways. Um, you know, what, what happened with uh, the, the linebackers, I think the guys ahead of them developed maybe to a level that wasn't expected. I think at the time you're bringing in Taraja Mitchell, for instance, with the 2018 class, you're projecting that maybe within two years he beats out some of those guys in the 2017, 2016 classes that were ahead of him. And those guys, I think, maybe overachieved a little bit, and that didn't really develop. Um, There are just multiple instances here where the way things kind of changed after this class was signed affects how we look at some of these guys. Well, so there's two things here. You are, again, you are sort of at the mercy of – the context around you, right? And for instance, in the linebacker room, one of the things that happened is you had a guy who was ranked in the 300s in the 2016 class in Tough Borland and a guy who was ranked in the 300s as a recruit in the 2017 class in Pete Werner, who all of a sudden, or Pete Werner's ranked 277, all of a sudden got here and like wouldn't get off the field. So they turned into three-year starters and they were all, as recruits, ranked lower than any of the guys in the 18 class. So it's like when Taraji Mitchell and Kayvon Pope and Dallas Gant get here, maybe they don't think that Pete Warner and Tough Borland are going to block them for three years, but they do. So that's like – and it's one of those things, again, it's like, hey, congratulations on developing Pete Warner and Tough Borland. It stunted the development of the, the top 100 guys who are – and the class is behind him, right? Maybe stunted is the wrong word, but we haven't had a chance to see it. So there is that. But the other thing is the context. This is this disastrous defensive coaching staff. So all these guys are stepping into Alex Grinch gone after a year. Greg Schiano drives this defense into the ground, leaves. Bill Davis, thankfully, mercifully gone after this year. And Taver Johnson in for one season this year to replace Kerry Combs and gone. So you're Tyreek Johnson. You think you're coming to play for Kerry Combs. You come in here. Your, your secondary coaches are Alex Grinch, Tavor Johnson, and Greg Schiano. And the next year, they're all gone. And we're like, hey, how, how come uh, Tyreek Johnson didn't develop? It's like, what do you think? 
these linebackers come in here, right? Bill, Bill Davis is already screwing up the guys who are here. So they, they at least they, they didn't have to realize what they were missing with Luke Fickle. They come into Bill Davis. Greg Schiano has the linebackers playing up at the line of scrimmage. They don't know what they're doing. Like the linebacker play this year is awful, mostly because of the scheme and because Bill Davis is an NFL coach, not a college coach. That's what they step into. It's like, hey, how come uh, Mitchell and Pope and Gant? What do you think? This is what they started their careers with. Why didn't why didn't Proctor and Hooker develop more? Alex Grinch was like looking for a new job the minute he got here. I, I don't really know that to be true. But he's only here for a year, and every he sure seemed excited to get to Oklahoma so everybody could start calling him a genius again. There's nothing that people like more than calling Alex Grinch a genius, and I'm not so sure that Josh Proctor and Marcus Hooker think he's a genius. So it has an effect, and it goes back to I mean. A, assistant coaches or middle managers, you should be able to find good ones. It's on Ohio State when they don't find good assistants because there are good assistants out there who want to come work here. But when you don't get the right ones, of course, it has a negative effect on your players. And I think you could argue that that is a contributing factor to this 2018 class, that they hit a window here where the stability and the coaching ability of the staff was not at an Ohio State level. And here we are as they're getting ready to play their fourth seasons at Ohio State. And I think it may be a contributing factor. Well, where while we are talking about this class popping in year four instead of popping in year three or year two. I think Tyreek Johnson just might be the most interesting case study of a five-star because of a lot of the reasons you just named. So by that logic, could he pop in year four now that he's had Kerry Cone, the guy who actually recruited him for two years in a row? Because this is actually the first time he's had the same position coach for two straight straight springs now. Now, I'm not saying he's going to pop and be an All-American, one of those guys, but could he pop and maybe make an All-Big Ten team or at least be a solid contributing starter and they get back to rotating seven banks, Cam Brown and Tyreek Johnson because of that? So we thought that part of it, right, is why – I can, whatever one or two practices we got to watch at spring practice last year, I can remember watching Tyreek Johnson and being like very into like, is this the beginning of that happening for him? Because Kerry Combs is back. And then the world got set on fire. And so he didn't get as much probably hands-on Kerry Combs stuff to make that happen. But I think it is true. And I think a guy like, and there's a lot of things that are different, but a guy like Curtis Grant in the Jim Trestle era, was a five-star linebacker who kind of never developed, never developed what's going on with this guy. And then by the 2014 season, it finally happens for him. And in that year, he shares the middle linebacker spot with Raquan McMillan, but he is a contributing player to a national championship team after you maybe thought it was like never going to happen for him. So I do think, Stephen, you make a good point that maybe – now the one thing is Tyreek Johnson got a shot this year. They gave him that game. Was it Michigan State? And no, like, it was it, Rutgers. Rutgers. It was a Rutgers game the first time they threw him out there, and it was just not – it, it didn't work. It didn't work. But, again, we've had that before too where a guy sort of gets his initial shot to get on the field. It doesn't work and then it gets better the next time he gets on the field. So there's opportunity, right? I mean, there's opportunity in the secondary still, which we've talked about a lot. But I do think, yeah, if you think coaching matters here, I think it, you make a smart point to not completely give up yet 
on what Tyreek Johnson maybe still could be. You can't count on it. Don't plan on it. Don't bank on it. Don't say, oh, if Tyreek Johnson isn't a starter, the secondary's in trouble, but don't give up on it either. Everything we're talking about leads into the final two survey questions we had. So let's take a break. We're going to come back with that because it sets the stage for what the 2018 class means for 2021. You're listening to Buckeye Talk. All right, back on this big Wednesday edition of Buckeye Talk, talking about the 2018 signing class and now specifically what we're expecting from those guys as we look into the fall of 2021. So the final two survey questions I asked, which is what made me feel especially stupid, um, not quite like not realizing the outlets are the problem stupid, but actually probably even stupider than that. I told people, hey, make sure you pay attention to questions three and four because there's a subtle difference there, but it's important to realize I'm asking you two different things. And then those two questions just didn't show up. So question three was, which class of 2018 signee with a limited role so far do you think has the best chance to break out in 2021? And the options I gave were Teron Vincent, Tyreek Johnson, Taraja Mitchell, Matthew Jones, Cameron Babb, Dallas Gant, Kayvon Pope, Javante Jean-Baptiste, and Cameron Brown. So again, that's, let's, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, nine guys. So a third of the class that we're talking about still fall into the category of after four years, players with a, a pretty limited role. Some of those, like Cameron Brown, it was because of injury. Uh, Matthew Jones has been blocked. Uh, Teron Vincent because of injury. So there are some circumstances. Cameron Babb lost a year to injury. Some circumstances play into that, but still, a third of the class, a third of the signees, very limited role so far. So how would you guys answer that, first of all? Which class of 2018 player, which of those nine players do you think has the best chance to break out regardless of, of what Ohio State needs them to do? Just which one has the best chance to pop? So I think there's multiple worthy candidates on that list. But I'll say a guy who I think – he has not been injured, and I think only has been blocked through really no fault of his own. But I have in my head, I can see him getting on the field in 2021 and people saying things like, how has this guy not played before? That yes, he had good veterans in front of him, but he's better. Why didn't he play? Like, he's quite good. And it's Dallas Gantt. I, I think Dallas Gantt, as your Mike linebacker in 2021, just might be, no offense to Tough Borland, no offense to Pete Werner. Listen, Pete Werner's going to be like a third-round pick. Or second, I mean, Pete Werner's really, really good. I just think Dallas Gantt might be like all Big Ten and just be like, oh, my God, why did it? You know, just I think I think he's the guy because he had a role this year, right? He was out there a little bit at times. I think he knows what he's doing. He's not. He wasn't like a top 100 national recruit. But of all the guys who have been blocked, I think he's the blockiest. So I'll go with him. That one was going to be mine, too, because it has a built-in cheat code of he's not Tough Borland. And so he might just make a play in the first game of the season that we all know Tough Borland would have never made. And every single fan in the world is going to go, thank you, finally, a middle linebacker who can make that play, finally. But I think I'd also add Teron Vincent is just healthy, and he's had a full year under his belt where he just got a chance to get healthy and, you know, get some wind under his wings and just be on the field. And I think now that he'll have a spring and get, be able to go through that, and we've been saying his name for two summers now, but I just think now that he's getting a normal year and he's finally healthy, I just think this could be a breakout year. And they might need that from him because, once again, it's Haskell Garrett, Jerron Cage, and then we don't really know what's behind there. And you can't play 
they're, they're gonna, those two are probably going to play the majority of snaps, but at some point they're going to have to come off the field. And so if Teron Vincent is able to at some point live up to that five-star rating that he must have, that's a huge boost to this defense. Antoine Jackson's back, but Antoine Jackson's probably the nose, right? And then yeah. Garrett and Vincent are the three techs. So I'll be curious if they can find ways. Can they play Vincent and Garrett together at times? Can one of them play enough nose to get them on the field? Or because Garrett's coming back to Garrett's coming back to be an all-American. Right. So it's like now we're talking again. It's like, is Teron Vincent not blocked because they do rotate guys there? But um I'll be curious how they how they work that out specifically. Uh, but Vincent, I mean, it, it is possible again, Vincent in, we've been talking about him for, since he got here, just might be like, oh yeah, no, he is all American quality. He just got hurt and had a weird career so far. And you can remember those two tackles played a majority of the snaps last year in part because they were both really good, but also that season was so chopped up that there were the wear and tear was on those guys was less. I feel like they're going to have to, if they play a full 12 game season this fall, which we all hope they do, I think you're going to have to rotate those guys a little bit more. And I also want to point out that I think, what Steven's saying about the Dallas Gantt, Tough Borland comparison may, may be true. Let's just be fair. There may also be times where whoever's playing middle linebacker doesn't have the defense lined up right in front of him or doesn't exhibit much awareness. And people are saying, like, oh, that's why Tough Borland was on the field as much as he was. I'm not, let's, I think to be fair, that has to be said. But does well, that happen at Ohio State? Do you, do you have times when the middle linebacker doesn't know what he's doing? Dallas Gantt's been know, here forever. I, I think he'll get him lined up. No offense. I think, I think he probably will. I'm just saying. I think to be fair, that has to be thrown out there. Um, but the, so my vote actually would have gone to maybe a different linebacker. I think I might've voted for Taraja Mitchell for a lot of the same reasons that Doug was talking about Dallas Gant. He's a guy that now is maybe projecting to be the starting will linebacker was, I guess the, it was a top 50 recruit. Another guy who he, he did have some injury stuff early in his career, but it wasn't really the reason why he hasn't necessarily played a whole lot. He has also been stuck behind first Malik Harrison and then Pete Werner when they moved him over to the weak side. Um, so that's another guy that I would throw in that conversation. But the number one vote getter with 31% of the vote was Teron Vincent. And then Taraja Mitchell, second at 21%. Cameron Brown, third at 14%. Dallas Gantt, fourth at 11%. And it, uh, then three other guys who got at least 6%, Kayvon Pope and Cameron Babb, didn't get a lot of votes. And I think part of that is because Pope didn't really have – it didn't seem like it was even on the too deep necessarily last season – um, maybe it's Sam linebacker. We'll see where they take that position this year. And then Cameron Babb, um, another guy who's just in a really piled up receiver room. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. But, but you know, of those nine guys I listed, seven of them got at least 6% of the vote. So you're getting pretty deep onto a list of, of guys that the fans who responded to us still see as having some, like, real breakout potential. Um and if, you know, pop, when we talked about, like, who's going to pop this year, that means different things. I think if Teron Vincent pops at this point, like, Doug, you're talking about, like, could he have some kind of an all Big Ten kind of impact? I almost think, though, when we talk about could Tyreek Johnson pop this year, it's like, could he finally just be a dependable reserve, right? It's a different kind be of in a pop. rotation or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the part of it, too, that I think is interesting with this 18 class is – the 2019 class was the transitional, smaller class, as we also have talked about. Listen, you guys, is there anything we could talk about? I mean, if, why do you listen to this podcast? You know everything. You're listening to it. You know as much as we do. You look at the recruiting classes. We know what you do in your spare time. It's fun to look at. The 2019 class, as we have said, 
Garrett Wilson, Zach Harrison, Harry Miller, and maybe Jamison Williams. And then a bunch of question marks behind that. So this 2018 class, right? The 2017 class is kind of cleared out in a lot of ways. Not completely, but in a lot of ways. And there's not necessarily a gazillion guys in the class behind them pushing them to take their jobs instead, right? So they're really, this is a kind of a big window for these guys that there is, should be ample opportunity, right? I mean, it's just- At a lot of these positions, yeah. The 20, if the 2019 class was 24 guys instead of 17, and it was filled with top 100 guys instead of having like four of them, it'd be like, all right, 2018 guys, these 2019 guys are coming for your jobs. If you don't get it, you know, but it's not necessarily the case. So there is opportunity here that we may wind up in a world where there are, there really are a lot of 2018 guys in year four starting this year. I think, I think that's very possible. Doug, I have a question for you because you were here. How many of those 2012 commits, recruits, the guys from that class were during that championship season, ample parts of the, um, ample parts of this team. The 2012 class, the one before the 2013 class. Correct. So that was like Urban's first year. It was kind of like a weird crossover year. Uh, Adolphus Washington was part of that, but there weren't uh, – Noah Spence, like I guess, was gone by then. Um, so that was – that didn't work. So Adolphus Washington, Tommy Shutt did play, Taylor Decker, Josh Perry. So Perry, Decker, Washington were big ones. Perry, Decker, Washington. And then a lot of guys that kind of slid through the cracks – Tyvis Powell, um, a lot of guys sort of slid through. Jacoby Boren, I guess five starters, Michael Thomas, Pat Elfline. A so is it amount, fair to say – A lot of guys did. There, if you look at the 2012 class, there's a lot of guys who did nothing. Right. So uh, the reason I'm asking, is it fair to say that that championship team was built on the backs of a recruiting class in its second year, but also recruiting class in its fourth year? So – uh, so you're saying like the recruits, like not the 12 class, but the guys older than that, plus the 2013 guys who were sophomores in 2014. Yes. yes. The 2014 class was a wonderful mix of sophomore elite sophomore talent from the number two recruiting class in the country and some trestle veterans like Michael Bennett and Devin Smith and Evan Spencer who were recruited by Trestle and were here and provide Curtis Grant provided a lot of that elite leadership steadying forces that they didn't necessarily go on to be, you know, first round draft picks, but it was almost a perfect combination. But yes, it wasn't necessarily the 12 guys. It was kind of like 10 and 11 guys with this injection of this 13 class who popped in year two. So could we see a similar thing this season? where it's a bunch of these – we're talking about this 2018 recruiting class right now, and, yes, there are some guys who might be drafted in top 100, but there are a lot of guys in this class who are going to be top 100 draft picks when it's all said and done. And Thayer Munford coming back as a 2017 guy. And then the four guys you've already mentioned in 2019, but then also there's a 2020 class with some high-end guys in it who we expect to have some roles this year, starting with Paris Johnson, Jackson Smith, the Jigba, Julian Fleming. Could we see a similar thing where – there's a class that just does nothing outside of the top end of it, but then everything else with 
how they build a national championship contender this year is built on the backs of a second-year group and then a fourth-year group, basically. So you're saying stop comparing the 2018 class to the 2017 class and 2013 class, who were sort of like young guy injectors, and think of them more as they are now the veteran stabilizing guys, and now we jump to 2020 where they could get they could be the injection of talent, as you said. By the way, the quarterback might be a 2020 guy. Yep. So it's Paris Johnson, Julian Fleming, Jackson Smith and the Jigba, maybe the starting quarterback, maybe Luke Whipler, maybe Court Williams, maybe Lathan Ransom, maybe Legend Cavazos. And now, now you're finding that balance. That 2018 never pops as the young guy injection but they survive as the stabilizing veteran force who now is supplemented by a different class who was the young injection of talent. Right. And then in 2019, you've just got three Adolphus Washingtons and Garrett, Zach, and Harry Miller. Who's writing this down? Who's writing? (laughs) Oh, I'm going to write this. Who's going to write? No, I'm going to write it. Oh, you are? (laughs) No, I'm not. Just because you say it doesn't mean it's your idea. Um, No, it is your idea. I think that is exactly right, Doug, because I think uh, the thing I'm going to write to house this podcast is going to be all that stuff you said about 2018 signing day at the start of this podcast. But that's just because you say it doesn't mean it's your idea. Buckeye talk. uh, Oh, 100%. Yeah, that is the fundamental. Once you put it out into the world, anybody can steal it. But if you look, Stephen, if you look at, and I've always thought that, I've always thought that, that that was actually the secret sauce a little bit of that 2014 team that we talk so much, as we should, about what those guys did as sophomores. But it was, it was the Curtis Grant, Michael Bennett, Evan Spencer, Devin Smith, sort of sup, those steadying forces as seniors who, you know, fourth and fifth year guys who really were sort of a foundation that maybe the 2018 class is more that foundation. And, and there are some 2020 guys who are going to have some opportunity. And there is that class in between both transitional classes. The 2012 class is the, is the fickle to, to urban transition. And the 2019 class is the urban to day transition. That it's sort of, you understand why it got a little hinky and you got some guys in there you wouldn't normally have in there. And there's not, a, there's not as much depth of talent. There's a couple of elite guys at the top, maybe. Yeah, look for that at Cleveland.com. That's going to be a good read. I, I like looking for historical comparisons for stuff like this. But I also like trying to figure out how, how rosters sort of fit together. And I do think there's something to the idea as much as people got really excited about the Alabama example of them winning a national championship with fourth-year guys who came back and up their draft stock and Devontae Smith's of the world. Maybe, Stephen, you're on to where the actual comparison is for this 2018 class. And it's not necessarily about guys coming back so they can make themselves first-round picks like Alabama did, but it's providing a depth of solid, maybe not spectacular, but really solid talent to allow for the injection to do something. Because if you're only injecting the young talent and you don't have any senior leadership, that's hard sometimes, right? That again, if you t- talk to me about what Michael Bennett and Duran Grant and Evan Spencer and Devin Smith and guys like that, what Jacoby Boren, what some of those guys mean, 
right, to that 2014 team. You don't get there without them. It doesn't matter how good Joey Bosa and Ezekiel Elliott those guys are. You've got to have those other guys with them. And that, that might be more what's coming together in Columbus this season. And it's a combination of that, but then also taking away the opportunity for maybe some of these younger, talented guys to be blocked. Because if some of those 2012 guys have hit, obviously Ezekiel Elliott, Joey Bosa are what they are. But, you know, as we've seen with some classes after that, I mean, it's very easy for a top 100 guy to get blocked by somebody who we all think he shouldn't be blocked from. The linebacker situation the last couple of years is a prime example of that. So what if you're in a situation where there's a running back? What if Briante Dunn or Warren Ball would have done just enough in the 2012 class to block Ezekiel Elliott. And then we're, and then Ezekiel Elliott gets on the field in year four and we're going, why hasn't Ezekiel Elliott been on the field this entire time? So that, that older fourth year class, that was enough for those guys back to provide the leadership and also do a few things on the field. But also there's a class before that 2013 class that wasn't good enough to block the 2013 class. So now you've got that great infusion of things that put together a national championship roster. So I, that's fascinating. I think you guys hit the nail on the head for, for what might be transpiring with this class. It leads into the, the final survey question, which was, which class of 2018 player with a limited role so far do you think Ohio State needs to break out the most in 2021? So it, this is different, I think, than like which one do we think is just like maybe teed up to have the, the best year? Which one, just based on what you think of their potential, might be the one that has the most in the tank that just hasn't burst through? And that's maybe why Teron Vincent wins that, because of the injuries and things that have maybe held him back. But which player does Ohio State need the most on the 2021 roster to, to finally have his moment and, and push through? And the percentages here were very similar to the other survey question, but the names changed. Who would you guys vote for as the one out of that same list of nine guys, Teron Vincent, Tyreek Johnson, Taraja Mitchell, Matthew Jones, Cameron Babb, Dallas Gantt, Kayvon Pope, Javante Jean-Baptiste, Cameron Brown. Who does Ohio State need the most to break out in 2021? That's hard because, like, I was, I was almost going to say a guy like Seven Banks who isn't on this list and is in a different category, right, of like a solid guy. But I really right. think they could use – like, they have enough, like – Hmm, I guess we'll see how the secondary works out, but mm -hmm. they could really use like the number one corner, right? That that really could be a thing. I understand why he's not on this list though. Cause he's almost too established for that. I think maybe I'll say Cam Brown then just because they still need that in the, in the secondary. And while Tyreek Johnson is more okay, he maybe has actually had some chances. It hasn't quite done it. Cam Brown looked ready to do it. We thought, and then got hurt. So if you can get Cam Brown back to, again, we are at the moment, and when we did the defensive, you know, a lot of this stuff crosses over in the offseason. We did the whole defensive depth chart breakdown. We sort of assumed the top two corners are going to be Seven Banks and Cam Brown. Well, if you say, no, Cam Brown had a setback from his injury recovery, or Cam Brown just whatever is not, is not as good or something, boy, oh, boy you really start throwing some question marks into that room. So seven banks at least showed. I think seven banks, I think in the end, most people would agree, had a pretty solid year this year. I don't think there's a lot of complaints about seven banks. There is some level of assumption you can make. We are making almost the same level of assumption with Cam Brown, and he got hurt like right at the start of the year. So that's a guy that I think they need because – if he's not there, you really start getting down the cornerback depth chart in a way where you start putting some pressure 
on some young guys to play a lot of snaps? Same answer. I think Seven Banks should probably be on this list as well because I think Seven Banks needs to be um, 10 times better than what Sean Wade was last year as the number one cornerback or this team's not going to be able to compete. Because at some point, you're going to play a team who can throw the ball and they're going to have a pretty darn good receiver. And you're going to – you can't stop him, but you can't let him have 200 yards and a half. It, there's got to be a middle, a middle area there that has to happen because you can't allow one guy – to just break down your defense time and time again like that. And I think if Seven Banks is just what he was last year and then Cam Brown is okay, then we're going to run into some of the same issues we ran into this past season. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about 10 times better, but I, they need a, a better option as the number one corner, more consistent play from that position, I would say. But I also think that right now, as, as much as that sounds great, I almost think that like you're looking at this roster and you're like, who do you count on as the second best cornerback right now? And that's the, the big question that's laying out there. Like, I, I don't know that you, I mean, we saw Cam Brown in a very limited capacity. We've seen a, we've seen both a lot and not enough of Tyreek Johnson, which is why we think of him in the way that we do. There's some younger guys that you think have promised, but we haven't seen it. So it's still, it's still that second option that really looms out to me as like the, the big potential problem. So, both of you voted for Cameron Brown. So did our texters. Uh, 35%. He won this survey, this poll. And Tyree Johnson was second at 20%. So 55% of the vote went to cornerback. And I think that really sets up, gives some perspective on what people are looking at still the big problem areas between now and the start of September, start of the season, the start of the actual games for, for Ohio State to figure out. And I, I think it, it also – the not so much Cam Brown because Cam Brown was a guy who was lower rated and just kind of hung around and worked himself into the, the spot he is, which is like a guy that you think should be in the rotation and maybe battling for like that number two starter spot. But Tyree Johnson, I don't know how we can, I don't want to like pile on the guy, but because I think his situation is, is worth looking at because of what you said earlier in this thing, Doug, about like how, how the back-to-back classes sometimes impact this and also how we're comparing them to the people who came before because that 2017 class had Jeff Okuda, the number eight overall recruit in the country as a corner, and he hit. It was, he wasn't really a superstar until that third year, but he was already involved, right? I mean, he was already a rotational guy, was making an impact. He was really good in the second half of 2018. Where he, right. he Not right yeah. away, but by the second half of 2018, like in the Rose Bowl and stuff in 2018, you were like, oh, 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 this is coming. That Washington game was his coming out party for sure. And then Sean Wade was the number 17 overall prospect in that recruiting class. And he redshirted as a freshman. But again, still by a couple years in, is starting to make an impact, be a rotational guy. And then even by last year, um, the 2019 season had become that like, a big impact guy at that slot corner spot. And then Tyree Johnson was number 21 overall in the country in that very next class. Now he was technically listed as a safety, but I think people along thought he was a corner. Am I right on that, Doug? Or is that? Yeah. 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 Just like a long corner. Right. And, and it's just never materialized. And that's one of those. So I don't know how much of that is. Does you would think if we were talking about this back to back scenario and where does that, leave certain guys you would think that it's the competition helps push guys to that next level and in his case that hasn't really happened if oh, go ahead steve this is more of a question for you because you were here the entire year obviously i showed up at the end of the season 
as good as Jeff Okuda was at the beginning of the year in 2018, would Damon Arnett in 2019 have kept that Jeff Okuda off the field? Um, I mean, they were rotating. So, no, I think I think it wasn't like nobody thought Jeff Okuda wasn't uh, getting it done. I think it was just more like he's still is only in his second year. He's still developing. Like he's he's coming along. But I think they would have he would have stayed on the field because they they saw what was coming, even if it wasn't instantaneous at the start of 2018. Which is my I think I don't they might not end up being a first round draft pick, and that's fine. We were all shocked by that. Obviously, I think had the problem with Tyreek Johnson is I feel like if he had been showing enough, I don't. See, I think he could have rotated in 2019. No, I agree. Again, With- part of this, this is blocked. He's not, it's, it's hard. And again, you don't want to do this to a guy. I mean, like we end up talking about Tyreek. Part of the reason we talk about Tyreek Johnson so much is because there aren't a ton of options around him, right? Because they had some other recruiting misses, with the 2019 class and the 2020 class where there's not, it's not like you're just like, Oh, well, we'll just put, you know what? Sometimes, sometimes a top hundred or top 150 guy never really pops. And it's like, Oh, well, there's just another guy rated just as high as him that will slide right in. And you don't even notice we end up putting a lot. This is a five-star guy, but we end up putting a lot on Tyreek Johnson in part because there isn't an obvious sort of next guy up with the way some of the other things happen in the secondary. And that's what I think is ultimately important when you look at things like recruiting rankings. It's not necessarily that Tyreek Johnson had to hit, but if Tyreek Johnson doesn't hit, then either Seven Banks or Cam Brown really has to hit, right? Like somebody, you have, somebody has to emerge as a obvious number one cornerback by now. And we're going into a season where that kind of nominally gets put on Seven Banks. And I think he may have been a little bit underrated this past season because people focus so much on whether Sean Wade was or was not an All-American or was or was not the best defensive back in the Big Ten or whatever. So he, some of what he did this past season may have gone a little bit overlooked. But coming into this next season, that's, that's three corners out of this one class. And we don't know if any of those three is like a great corner. We don't really even know if – one of them is good enough to be a second number two starter. But and this, part of the reason is that when you think about Ohio state, you don't just think of corners, you think of first round mm-hmm. corners. Right. So that's what we're holding them up against too. It's like, well, is seven banks going to be a first round pick? And it's like, well, does he have to be, you know, he was only right. like seven banks was a recruit in the three hundreds, the five star in his class hasn't really developed. So now it's on seven banks to be a first rounder to continue this tradition where all of a sudden, as we sort of said before with other guys, you know, like Brian Sneed to Master Teague, Tyreek Johnson to Seven Banks, if the guy ranked higher than you kind of doesn't happen, now all of a sudden the expectations for you are raised when it's like, listen, you're having a pretty good career. But this is Ohio State. And in both of those rooms, it's made worse by – I know we just went on a long soliloquy about the 2019 class. It's made worse by there's no option there. As a third-year class, there's no option of to, to ease it. There's no option at running back because you've had misses. There's no option at corner because there's real. There's literally not a cornerback in the class. So it's 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 a lot of pressure because of the ratings, but also yeah, there's no other option because the other options are either second-year guys or they're true freshmen who just got here a week ago. And again, it's not just that we're comparing corners to first-round corners that came before them. It's this recruiting class. And this Ohio State team this fall could have a really strong season. They could be a Big Ten champion. But it's what are we ultimately always making the comparison of? It's like, is this team national championship caliber? 
So that's the other thing. It's like, we're not saying that one of these corners can't step up and be one of the eight best cornerbacks in the big 10 or two of them can't be the one of among the 10 best cornerbacks in the big 10. But does that make you a national champion? Does that even make you a playoff team? Or does it make you a team that if you even get into the playoff by winning whatever the big 10 is right now, then you get Oklahoma off the field, like those kinds of things. Like that's, that's the perspective that all of these classes are judged on. Yeah. Who's covering Justin Ross in the playoff. I mean, I, 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 that's, that's what, that's what the world is. That's what the world is. And that's, and nobody apologizes for that. They don't want it any other way. The people listening to this don't want it any other way. So that's the way we talk about it. So what haven't we talked about yet today that you feel is important to, because I know you've probably still got something else. You've always so, got something on deck. I got it. I got it. So here's the thing that I think brings it to now. And I think I want to, I wanted you guys to check in on this as we talk about the 17 and 18 class in relation to each other, both number two in the country. And we look ahead to how we think the 2021 class that is wrapping up right now and the 2022 class, which already has a bunch of five stars in it, has 10 guys committed. That could be the next time that we see two classes stacked like that on top of each other, right? I mean, like that there was, they're recruiting great, but there was a little bit of transitional stuff or whatever. That's what we're talking about. They 2021 is going to be number two in the country, and 2022 could be one or two. In the, in the final analysis of this, how much does 2018 being the second elite class stacked on top factor into why it is perceived? And maybe not in perception, why not as many guys have achieved as much so far? Is it a function of how it has to work when you have this two great classes like that right on top of each other? Meaning, would we expect that maybe the same thing might happen with this 2022 class, which we're a year away from seeing signed, but are we going to talk about how, oh, Caleb Burton never quite popped while the way you thought he would because he was blocked by Emeka Egbuka and Jaden Ballard? You know what I mean? Like, is it is that a, is is this sort of normal, or was there enough other things in play that that we shouldn't necessarily expect that twenty one twenty two that stacking will work out the same way? But that's the thing. Like, I would I would argue though that the twenty eighteen class, the reason why it has such an uneven, I think if it was all guys who were just blocked, people would be like. Oh, well, like you can't really say this class is underachieved. I mean, what could you do? Like they just, they just happened to recruit so well back to back at some of the same positions that guys were blocked, but like, you know, Nicholas Petit Frere wasn't really blocked, but there were, as you say, some physical things that had to come around for him. And when they did, we saw what happened. Tyreek Johnson wasn't blocked. Um, I would even argue as as Steven was saying, Jalen Gill wasn't really blocked. I mean, he didn't, he wasn't even involved in the, really is the second option when trying KJ Hill. In fact, Ryan Day came out and said, like, if we had any other option, KJ Hill wouldn't have been playing as much as he did. So, <clears throat> you know, um, I mean, who else? I mean, Mitchell was obviously blocked. Tommy Togai was blocked. Matthew Jones was blocked. But, like, Josh Proctor wasn't really blocked. I wouldn't – I mean, I guess when they went to single high safety, but his impact this past season wasn't because he was necessarily blocked. So I think you can you can go pretty deep on some of the impact guys in this class and, and argue that they weren't really blocked. Um, you know, even Teron Vincent because he had the injury thing, but like, it wasn't really, it wasn't the 2017 class. that was keeping these guys off the field. I think with some of these guys, things would have to almost put out the exact same way for it to repeat itself like this. Like is Jaheim Singletary going to have to deal with 
having three or four different position coaches because Kerry Combs leaves again. Even I know you brought up Caleb Burton, but there's three different wide receiver spots. And it, it seems from the way Brian Hartline talks about it, it's, he's going to find a way to get the best three on the field, even if that means moving somebody to the slot like he did with Garrett Wilson or even moving the guy back outside. There needed to be a, a linebacker reload in this class, just like I'm, I'm assuming it needed to be one in 2018, which is why they got so many of those guys. But also – those three guys are pretty versatile, and one of those guys might end up growing into a defensive end, so it might change some things. I think right now, I mean, you need a reload at tight end in this class because you didn't get two in 2021. So right now, I think the classes complement each other, so it's not as big of an issue. Um, quarterback is going to be a conversation every single year. So obviously the Quinn Ewers, Kyle McCord, whoever – CJ Stroud, whoever ends up winning this job, they know that they're going to win the job. And unless they win a national championship, their job is on the line when Quinn Ewers gets here. So we get that. But I think right now, given what they have, things seem to be complementing each, each other. And even as they go forward, some of the positions they're still kind of keyed in on, they're not taking as many guys. Like they, They're going to try to take a second wide receiver, but we'll see if they take a third after that. So I think right now, unless those things all play out where Ryan Day starts having health issues and the assistant coaches start leaving and he has some misses and, you know, some guys get some injuries, all of that would have to happen for it to play out the exact same way. Well, and Steven, it's another important thing too. It's like the philosophy, as long as the philosophy stays consistent, because that was the thing that got jumbled up here, right? You had it. You literally had a coaching um, change that happened right after this class was recruited, right? As this class was coming in. And as long as, as the Ryan Day, philosophies stay in place I think that helps that gives a stability for these classes to kind of roll over again because like the receiver is a great example right like at the time the, the the difference between a slot receiver and an outside receiver in this offense right now is much more subtle than it was under Urban Meyer right like I don't feel like Garrett Wilson ran KJ Hill routes in 2020 when he was in the slot like I feel like he ran Garrett Wilson routes which are not that different than what he might run on the outside in a lot of ways. And I feel like as Steven's saying, like they're just going to move, you know, they'll decide one guy lines up in the slot, but he's not a slot the way that someone was an H back under urban Meyer, like things like that give those sort of philosophical consistencies, I think will give these back-to-back classes a greater chance of not having a, a conversation like what we're having with this 2018 class. I do think you guys are right at the end that that, Whatever, there's sort of maybe probably some small factor in there, but that what happened with 2018 is much more a result of the transition, some coaching shortfalls when these guys were young, some bad injury luck for some guys, which always factors into this, that it's not necessarily indicative of, hey, if you stack two classes, this is definitely going to happen. The other thing that we did not spend a lot of time on, um, and I think factors into this, and I think fairly, is that this, so 2017, the quarterback was Tate. And you kind of maybe were getting an idea that that might not exactly work. And the 2018 quarterback is Matthew Baldwin. They missed in 2018. They screwed up 2018 quarterback recruiting. Matthew Baldwin was a late grab. And all of us fell in for about a year into the like, oh, he's Ryan Day's guy. He was going to go to Colorado State. And Ryan Day went down to Baker Mayfield's high school and Garrett Wilson's high school. And he got Matthew Baldwin. And now Ryan Day is going to be the head coach. And Matthew Baldwin's his secret quarterback. And it was like, no, that didn't happen at all. And Justin Fields saved them. Justin Fields saved them as a 2018 guy came in and has been as good as anybody at the position in Ohio State history. But this 2018 class, I mean, that when you miss that badly on your quarterback at a time when there is a wide open pathway for your quarterback, 
it goes back to sort of the thing you asked at the beginning, Nathan, is like, well, you know, they're going to be fine because they're Ohio State. Maybe they are. But I also, like, just don't excuse it. Like, it's not just like, oh, whatever. Because, again, like, if Justin Fields decides to go to transfer somewhere else, or if Kirby Smart decides to play Justin Fields, it works out differently than it worked out. And we'd be talking a lot more about how Matthew Baldwin was the 2018 quarterback. And instead, in discussing the shortfalls of a recruiting class, we spent two minutes on quarterback. Because as we said for the last two seasons, Justin Fields fixes everything. Which is why I brought that up. It wasn't necessarily to yes. try to sneak him into 2018. It was to explain why 64% of our texters were saying, um, you know, maybe this wasn't that big of a deal that maybe this class didn't explode early on because Justin Fields came in and corrected a lot of things. Or what do you want to say? Like he, he concealed a lot of things. He fixed the future too. It's why we don't question, hey, is Ohio State going to get a good quarterback recruit? Yeah, they're going to go get Quinn Ewers and they're going to get whoever the next Quinn Ewers is the next year because Justin Fields came here and turned into a Heisman Trophy candidate immediately. So he fixed every, every mistake from the two years prior, but now he's fixed everything going forward because now we have an expectation of for quarterback recruits think that they can come here and play for Ryan Day and they're going to turn into Justin Fields or some version of that. And, and the hard thing is, again, the, the portal is now a second level of recruiting. Honestly, it is. But the, there's just fewer guys. So if you're recruiting a high school quarterback and you miss on this guy and you miss on this guy and you miss on this guy, if you're Ohio State, you still should be able to get somebody good. They really, the 2018 quarterback recruiting, a lot of things went wrong in there. Um, so, but in the portal, it's like, okay, well, we didn't get Justin Fields and you didn't get Jalen Hurts. And now all of a sudden you wind up in a spot, right? That there are, there's just less room for error. So you can't rely on it the same way. And so, you know, and I know there was a lot of moving parts when Justin Fields came and then, you know, Dwan Mathis and Emory Jones and a lot, it was a weird time. And, and that if Fields hadn't come, they probably would have come up with some other solution, but it wouldn't have been as good as Justin Fields. So I do think in the end, the, the part of the legacy of this 2018 class is that they had to get a transfer quarterback and then they had to get a transfer running back in Trey Sermon to try to fix some stuff. Because at the skill position recruiting in 2018, it did not go the way they wanted it to go. Which leaves us, do they feel like they need to fix some stuff one more time this year on the defensive side of the ball, whether it's in the linebacker room? I know we just got done talking about guys being blocked, but there or in the secondary. Yeah, I mean, like, do you solve is that, hey, oh, we've talked about sort of this, this little blip in the secondary recruiting, this two-year blip. We've talked about it for a lot. I mean, I don't know who's out there, but it's like, oh, oh, you brought in a cornerback who's going to start right away and is like going to be all big 10 and then you fix it. But I don't know, I guess, and this is maybe, this is probably a different podcast in the transfer thing. Like, will there ever be a time when Ohio can't, Ohio state can't fix its mistakes. Now listen, Ohio state makes fewer mistakes than any program out there short of Alabama. Right. I mean, we get it. You can't have a perfect roster, but what, like, are they going to almost have a perfect roster? Because will they now always be able to fill the hole? And I, I think I wrote about that when they got Trey, that like maybe the answer is yes. And maybe that like these conversations almost become obsolete because it was like, yeah, your recruiting class didn't go perfectly, but who cares? You just figured out where you needed some dudes and you went out and got two transfers who were all big 10 and you're good to go. Relax. 
And to what we were talking about on the Tuesday podcast, I mean, that maybe opens the window to having smaller classes because instead of maybe reaching because you didn't get the guys you want and just taking a guy in the end, you just say, we'll take this smaller class, we'll deal with these high-end guys, and three years from now, there's going to be a guy in the transfer portal for when we need to fix this instead of taking an extra guy in a class who's never going to get on the field here. And it's a whole other tangent, but as we've talked before, like it's why I argue that the immediate transfer rule when it comes in is super beneficial to Ohio State. I think it helps them way more than it hurts them because I know you're going to lose some depth guys once in a while. Maybe the guys don't stick around when they're blocked for four years the way these linebackers have because it it, it takes away that punitive thing that the, the players have to pay that coaches don't where they have to sit out a year. But it anytime you have a glaring need that crops up either suddenly or because something doesn't work out two years before in recruiting, you get to just kind of canvas the country and, and put out those – uh, those sonar signals or whatever to the world to be like, get people like us to write about it or, or wait until people like us to write about it. Not that they ask us to, but like we eventually will say like, boy, they really could use a, a transfer um, nose tackle this year. It would really solve a lot of things. And then like there's four nose tackles out there who are like, boy, I'd love to go play one season at Ohio state or two seasons at Ohio state or whatever. And like, I think that's going to happen. I think it's going to help them more. So. I think that gives us a great foundation for this 2018 class. It's not the last time we're going to talk about it, though, because I think it's worth – I mean, this is a, a crucial year for this class. It's a crucial class for this year. You could say it both ways. And I think we're going to come out of the spring and have a different perspective maybe on where some guys stand, depending on how much we get to watch and how much we get to learn from that. And then certainly as the season starts, I think it's going to be worth revisiting exactly where things stand and, and what's happening with that class. Quickly looking ahead to the rest of this week on Buckeye Talk, are we are we going basketball for Thursday? There's a big basketball game Thursday night. I think we were leaning towards at least a big part of that pod being basketball related. I mean, I think that makes sense. I think we have to be yeah. on alert. We don't know what we don't know 100% for sure what's going to happen on Wednesday. If Rayshon Davis commits to Ohio, Correct. <laughs> commits right. to Ohio State on Wednesday, <laughs> we will deal with that on the Thursday podcast. Exactly. If, if National Signing Day on Wednesday, as you guys are hearing this, is relatively uneventful, which is sort of what we're expecting from an Ohio State standpoint, then I think diving in on basketball, it's, it's, not, it's not weird. It's exactly what we would expect. When we send out the messages to the texters, there are some people who are like, give me basketball. That's awesome. Give me basketball. And there are some people who are like, you know, I'm really just here for the football. And that's okay. And I imagine the podcast audience is – somewhat similar we can't pretend that the audience for ohio state basketball is the same as it is for ohio state football but they're top 10 and we haven't had a full basketball podcast in like two years so yeah i think that makes sense i want i will promise people right now that the thursday pod will start with football because i think no matter what happens with ohio state on signing day uh, first day of the late period on wednesday uh, I think there's, it's worth having a discussion about what happened this year in recruiting with the rest of the Big Ten and what that means for these next couple of years going forward and how it, whether there's someone out there making a, a run at Ohio State with the way that it recruited this year, that sort of thing. So we will definitely talk more football in some capacity at the start of Thursday, Pod, but I think it is worth hitting basketball because a, a, they've got a game against Iowa that night, two top ten teams. And if they win that game on the road, I think it, it gives you a better ex- – uh, perspective on what the ceiling of this basketball team might be so that's coming thursday and i think we've got some more interesting recruiting stuff on deck for friday too kind of relating to something i wrote earlier this week about the quarterbacks and um how that might uh, compare looking back at jt barrett and how that all compares so we've got some more recruiting related ideas on deck 
and uh, looking forward to that. So I'm Nathan Baird for Doug Lamer East for Stephen Means. That was Buckeye Talk.